begin. The internet, a doorway to the world's most fascinating and terrifying communities. To explore it is to interrogate that which makes us human. Only some are brave enough to venture into these other worlds. Only some are brave enough to be called. The Internet Explorers. Hello everybody, welcome back to Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. We have got such a special episode. I'm your host, David Ryan Anderson. And I'm your co-host, Evan Axel Anderson. Well, we're both hosts, we're both. We're both hosts, we're both co-hosts. I feel like- David, David's a host, I'm a co-host. It's it's like, it's not, it, there is a, some confusion about the terminology and I just said co-host instead of just a host. Yeah, sorry, we're a little bit out of it, I think, cause it's been a few months since the last time we did an episode. And that is partially because I think, I think the day that we recorded our last episode, we both got COVID. Yeah, we were over there. That was when we recorded our in-person episode, our one in- <laughs> Stupidly, we were just like, you know what? This is great. We get to record in person. We will never record in person. Now we'll never record in person ever again because it almost killed David. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up uh, in the hospital. Um, I had a really bad case. I had all, all kinds of damage to my liver, my kidneys. I had sepsis. I had um, my lungs. Uh, I had double pneumonia and blood clotting and all kinds of stuff, um, but I'm- finally back to normal and ready to podcast again um yes. in the meantime there's been a lot of crazy stuff to talk about regardless of whether or not we are available to witness it it's like a tree in a forest the internet's craziness marches on without us that was a mixed metaphor but you know what we're just back <laughs> back in the <laughs> cockpit here i am really excited because this episode we are talking about Cryptocurrencies, blockchains, NFTs, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Ethereum, all these crazy terms that are worth a lot of money. Um, this is an episode we actually wanted to do back in season one because there was a lot of hype around uh, Bitcoin in particular. There was a huge kind of bubble in uh, in Bitcoin that popped and a lot of people were wondering about cryptocurrencies and what exactly were they all about. We didn't do an episode about that back then because I, I, I never felt that we really had a good grasp on it. Fortunately, we've had several years in between to really kind of continue observing and figuring out what this is all about. And now we are living through, it turns out, a new giant crash in cryptocurrency. The market for all crypto, my understanding, basically dropped about $1 trillion in the past two weeks as of our recording right now. So there's a lot of money that's moving around these spaces and people, I think, you know, our, ourselves included, have been very curious about what the heck even is all of this stuff. It's complicated. It, even in planning this episode, um, there are points where I would write something or say something to David and they would be like, well, uh, I, I think it's actually this. So even, even we, after doing like research on this are still a little bit, uh, or, Rather, we were. Now we have perfect knowledge that we can share with you, listener. Uh, but it's really give people a great reason not to listen to the episode. I just want to let you know, know we have no idea talking. what we're talking about. <laughs> it's really confusing, guys. It is. Yeah, it's a really confusing uh, world, a weird intersection of finance and technology, and just like a lot of uncertainty about what any of it means. So what we decided, I, I'm very surprised to find out 
in researching for this episode, there's very few resources that are really, um, they just function as on-ramps to say, do you know absolutely nothing about this world? Watch our video or whatever, read this article, and we're going to take you from zero to just like a, a good passing knowledge of what any of this is. And I'm hoping that this episode can be that kind of on-ramp for people that uh, we're going to be working from the assumption that you know absolutely nothing about what any of these words mean, crypto, blockchain, NFT, Bitcoin, whatever. And hopefully by the end of this episode, you will not only know what all those terms mean, but you'll also know why they're important and why, in our opinion, they're going to be kind of essential knowledge for living in the future. Well, there's a lot of terms around this that are unfamiliar to folks. So if it is the future, then let's get talking about the future. (laughs) (laughs) That's the music. That's the music right there. David, I'm looking here in the episode notes um, as as we talk about this material. I'm, I'm so happy that you finally decided to read those <laughs> during the episode. Yeah, thank you for putting this together for every episode. And now that I'm finally reading them, I'm noticing you have an article here from like a decade ago and some change uh, from a comedy website. And I'm a little confused as to why this thing from vintage Obama era America is, is in the, the episode notes. Uh, you're, you're right, Evan. Oh, thank you for queuing me up for that. I have had this article from 2010 called Why the Future Will Be Ruled by BS. It is from the comedy website Crack.com by uh, editor David Wong. And I have been unable to let this leave my brain, you know, in the past decade or so. And it, he basically outlines what will the economy of the future look like. And by economy of the future, what he really means is the economy of today, basically. And I'm including it here because I think that this is a good tee up for a lot of the things we're going to end up talking about today. So in the article, he talks about what I would consider to be the ultimate dream of all human society. What if you could have a world where resources were no longer limited? Basically, you had like on Star Trek, they have the replicators. They can they can give people whatever they want, uh, you know, materially at least. It would completely change our economic system because once you remove scarcity, then, you know, people can have basically whatever they need for cheap, if not for free. And it's this kind of dream world, you know, you can kind of shift society's focus away from, you know, being really focused on survival uh, or on working to meet your most basic needs and you free people up. They can begin to pursue, you know, their passions and pursuits and focus on innovations that uh, exist purely to, you know, just serve our other needs. Just it's a very utopian idea. Right. His argument is that this society will never happen, not because it can't happen, but because there's too much money to be lost in allowing that kind of society to develop in the first place. Society with no scarcity, no money, doesn't make money. Right, yeah, no, equality is a great thing for people who have something to gain, not for people who have something to lose. Yeah. But what difference does it make? Because how do you even make a world like that? Well, we are, you know, we're just getting better at developing these yeah, sustainable, uh, unlimited energy alternatives and automation is slowly taking away a lot of, so service jobs, manual labor jobs. You would think 
that as those things just continue to develop, we as the, the people, the humans, we would have less need to work because those things you know, are much more automated. And that would be very cool, I think. We're moving towards a Star Trek future where we can meet all of our needs at increasingly uh, more accessible costs. So why wouldn't we lean into that? Why would we, we ever derail that? That seems very cool to be able to attain. Mm. Well, in the article, he gives an example of a little company called Nestle in developing nations, uh, you know, back in the 70s, honestly, for decades, they were really trying to push this narrative that breast milk is bad for babies' development, uh, or at least it's like insufficient for it. But, you know, mothers needed to buy their baby formula from Nestle. And the horrific part is that the baby formula, you know, it needs to be mixed with water. And in many of these areas, clean water isn't readily available for people to use. So as a result, infants were being fed this unsanitary water and diseasing them. And they really, you know, babies, they're not super great at being able to fight off diseases like that. And a lot of them were succumbing and they were dying from this. So why would all of these mothers voluntarily stop feeding their babies the free, completely nutritious milk that their own bodies produce and instead pay some company for the right to poison their own children. Mm. I feel like this is a very important question and in a big way this is kind of the key to unlocking economics in the 21st century. Because as automation rises, people will shift towards digital spaces to create more digital goods. This is something we're seeing a lot in you know, I guess what, what we're calling the Western world, a shift away from more manual kind of jobs, giving that stuff, outsourcing it either to other countries or to automation. And ideally, automation will, you know, be picking up more and more of the slack. Meanwhile, workers will start to move towards digital spaces like the Internet to do work. And on the Internet, there really is no such thing as scarcity. You can download any image, you can download any video or an entire website or a game. It doesn't really cost you anything to do that because digital goods are what are known as post-scarcity. They are unlimited. You can make a million duplicates of the Charlie Bit My Finger video and it doesn't cost you anything except the electricity that you ran your computer on. But you may realize that if everybody is downloading everything for free, nobody can actually make any money that way. So what you end up with is basically a lot of people who are implementing systems of forced artificial scarcity. You can't listen to that MP3 unless you buy it. You can't watch that movie unless you sign up for our subscription service. You can't play that game unless you download our client software. We are putting limits on things for really no reason other than those limits are what create monetary value. And that's been something that's been really fascinating to me because it really highlighted for me just like, just I like really just like how precarious and I guess I'll say arbitrary the economy is. Well, it's not like completely arbitrary, but you know. I mean, it sounds like uh, David Wong's kind of seized on the idea of rentism, right? Uh, we talked about this back, uh, back a few episodes ago, Peter Fraze's Four Futures. One of them was rentism, the idea that, well, if we have total abundance, there's going to have to be some kind of way for people to still make a buck. And that will be just people can still control who gets access to what and subscription services will abound. You know, um, these kinds of different uh, arbitrary limiters on access are what are going to basically govern future markets uh, in a world where everything is sunshine and daisies and everybody's got as much as they need. 
And it sounds like what, yeah, David Wong's kind of like picked up on this, right? He's he's looking at it even in, you know, uh, a decade ago, he can still identify this trend and say, oh, this is the thing that is happening to the way that uh, companies engage with their own markets and with their consumers. Yeah. So basically what it comes down to is you go on to a subscription service, you pay for the right to play a game. Yeah. And at any time they can just delete the game to stop stop supporting it on their servers and then you lose it. Right. You are you're renting the game. That philosophy is going to start being applied to more and more things as society slowly migrates more and more online and into digital spaces. So having established that, let's talk about cryptocurrency. So we're going to define a few terms here. Crypto. Crypto is just short for cryptography. Uh, cryptography is like secret communication, hidden words, things like that. In the world of computers, it really means things like secure communication, things that are encrypted. Uh, a lot of these fancy digital words that basically means you can't get in and mess around with it. So that kind of security is very important in digital spaces. Easy. Let's go to the next one. Blockchain. Yeah, so one of these terms that I think you have to understand before you can really understand anything else is blockchain. Everybody's talking about the blockchain. Sort of amorphous entity that exists on the margins of your consciousness, uh, the blockchain. Um, what is that? Yeah, blockchain is basically a technology that was developed, I believe, like several decades ago. But the idea was that, you know, in real life, if I want to give Evan a pen, I just hand him the pen. And now reality, it's an objective fact that Evan now has the pen. He's holding it. That's just, you can't dispute that. The molecules are in the molecules of my hand. Yeah. <laughs> Online, it's very difficult to actually just hand something to somebody because again, there's millions of copies. But what blockchain technology does is it creates basically a ledger of transactions that everybody has. Everybody's computers all have access to this ledger. And I can type in, I'm giving Evan a pen, and the blockchain will update the ledger for everybody who has access to it. So now it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter if you even know who Evan or I are, the ledger now says this transaction happened, David gave Evan the pen. And if there's ever a dispute in the future of who owns the pen, we can all look at our ledger, they're all the same, and they all will say, well, according to this, we all agreed Evan had the pen. David, you gave it to him, and here's the day you gave it to him. Right, because you have everything you need for a digital pen in your computer. The point is, is that there needs to be some kind of limiter that says, no, actually, everybody verifies that that is the fact. You can't just make that up. Bitcoin. So this technology was developed years ago. But nobody really thought to use it for a digital currency until 2008. Satoshi Nakamoto is somebody or multiple somebodies. We're really not sure who, who this person is or if they're a collective or what. So just a username on the internet, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, but that, that's, what, that's what they go by. In 2008, they developed Bitcoin. They realized that you could use this blockchain technology, this, this universal ledger that keeps track of transactions, you could make your own currency and you could start to trade it that way online. And this would be a really good way to just keep track of who really owns what money. And it is decentralized, right? It is sort of the market regulating and creating accountability for itself over many, many different participants. 
um, everybody sort of has access to the blockchain. And when someone gives somebody else another object, a digital object, is verified using this ledger. This point is basically the crypto and cryptocurrency, right? So that's what we're discussing here is this aspect of you have goods or currency, but if somebody has a computer and just says, well, now I have a, a billion Bitcoin, everybody's going to say, no, that's not how that works. You, we have to verify it on the blockchain that that actually is a thing. Yeah, it was kind of a populist idea. You know, you had, there was no central government who was controlling the money. There was no banking system or regulations or whatever. This was like money for the people. Um, there was a big ideological fascination with it from, you know, uh, uh, sort of libertarians, anarchists, you know, you could use this money in ways that you could not use like a dollar or some government yeah. currency. This also meant because it was very unregulated that you could do lots of black market deals with it. Get yourself some new kidneys with it. It's great. Yeah, you had a lot of money laundering with this. Yeah, you laundering. had a lot of drug sales and, and unsavory things going on, Right, which actually is not that new. You look at digital currencies in things like World of Warcraft, where it's a video game where you're using digital gold to buy digital swords and digital armor and whatever. Yeah. In World of Warcraft, you also had like different criminal organizations going on, basically using this as a money laundering tool because people will pay real money for World of Warcraft gold, as long as they have a perceived value that works. And Bitcoin was just even more versatile than something like that. Yeah. But still, it's basically video game money is what it came down to. And it was very easy to make. It turned out that, yeah, you could make a Bitcoin, but you could also, you, as the years went by, we started seeing a lot of other people developing their own cryptocurrencies using the blockchain. Uh, in 2013, you had Dogecoin, which was supposedly, by its, according to its creator, he made in one day. Dogecoin was, um, it's a reference to the meme, the Doge meme, which is like a cute little dog. It's who, like a little Akita dog that makes a funny face. Yeah, he makes a little funny face and he says Doge, like, or he says the word dog like Doge because it's funny. Wow, very wow, much good. That, that, that's where that whole yeah. way of talking comes from. So this, this thing was a meme and somebody decided, well, I can make a money out of this meme. And then people bought it because they thought it was funny. And uh, it has since become an actual currency. So all of these currencies started blowing up, not only Bitcoin, you have uh, Ether and like I said, Dogecoin and various other ones that, you know, are gaining real world value. Yeah. And basically until like 2017, there are basically like penny stocks, like, you know, for and a lot of them are still like a coin only costs like less than a dollar. But basically since 2017, it's been taking off. And in the past like eight months, it has really taken off like crazy. Yeah, it's also massively dropped in the past few weeks. Like we said, it's the market is like the blockchain marketplace is extremely volatile. Yeah, it's possible to make a lot of money there. It's also possible to lose a lot of money there. Uh, but it's been steadily growing. And it's it's impossible to just write it off and say that it's just like, a bubble, like a complete bubble or a fad. I think there are bubbles within the crypto world, but it's not going anywhere. And beyond the cryptocurrencies and the, the Bitcoins and things like that, I personally think the most fascinating part of this whole thing are NFTs. NFT. If you've been around the past few months, you may have heard people mentioning NFTs. And if you're like me, you had never heard of them before. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, discovered that not only do these things exist, but they're worth millions of dollars. So what is an NFT? 
Yeah, so very recently, um, NFTs have become more and more popular as a topic of discussion, uh, particularly I've noticed on Twitter, a lot of folks on Twitter talking about NFTs, trying to sell NFTs on Twitter or discuss their value. NFT is basically a acronym. It stands for non-fungible token. It is essentially discussing the concept of fungibility. What is that? basically means something that can be substituted for something else, uh, something just as good. So the idea of something being non-fungible is the idea that it is absolutely unique, that it cannot be replicated. So in that sense, right, I, Evan, am non-fungible. Can't find anybody to replace me. Evan cannot be funged. <laughs> I cannot be funged. David can't be funged. <laughs> I'd like to clarify, I don't know if funged is actually a term, but we are using we're gonna, it. Now. We're using it. Oh, boy. <laughs> Um, no, it, it is it is absolutely unique, right? P pieces of art made in like a traditional medium, like with paint or charcoal, these are unique because an artist took matter and applied that matter to a different matter, a canvas, right? Now that is the only piece of canvas in the entire world with paint and uh, pencil and graphite and whatever on there in the arrangement that it is. And we now get back to that original topic we talked about earlier, which is that digital stuff, you can just, you know, you find a JPEG of a, of a piece of art that you like, just copy paste it, you know, you download it. Yeah, Apple C. Apple C, yeah. What this means is that it is not possible to make art in a digital world that is non-fungible. But that's what the idea behind these tokens is, right? It is a way of creating art that is totally unique in a digital environment. That's basically the theory of what an NFT is, but there's particulars about how you make a non-fungible token that get us a bit into the nitty gritty. Yeah, basically the way you make an NFT, this is a very crude version of, uh, of the process. The way you make an NFT is basically the same way you would make a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency. Imagine that you digitally make a crypto thing and you staple it to your JPEG of Evan or whatever. Well, now that image of Evan that I have, you know, stapled this unique, uh, non-fungible digital yeah, token, token to, yeah. is now unique. They're now inseparable. The number, the code that it has on it is specifically dedicated to that picture of Evan. Okay, so I have my NFT of Evan's face, it, my, my JPEG. Nobody can copy it, it's one of a kind. What's to stop somebody from screenshotting their computer and taking the picture? Absolutely nothing. You can screenshot it. You can copy paste it as much as you want. The only real distinction is that according to the blockchain, according to this universal ledger that everybody looks at, only one person technically owns that picture of Evan. So you can come forward and you can say, well, I've got it on my phone. I've got it on my computer or whatever. I printed it out. It doesn't matter. According to the ledger, you don't own it. You I stole it. You took, you know, you, you have a, you have a bad replica of it. Yeah. You don't have the, the original, right? It may be a perfect replication of it uh, because it's digital, but it is not the original. It does not have the, the crypto token on it. Yeah. And you know, that raises a lot of questions about, well, then what even is the point of these things? And we'll get into that later. First, I would like to talk about how do you make an NFT? How do you make a crypto coin? What's stopping millions of people from just making these things and entering them into the marketplace? How do you even make it unique in the first place? Mama, where do Bitcoins come from? 
So there's really two ways that you could at this point go about creating um, a crypto coin, a, a, some kind of currency that is crypto. There is the proof of work model and the proof of stake model. At this point, proof of work predominates. It's what Bitcoin uses to create their coins. And essentially the idea is that proof of work is you set your computer to do some math problems that are given to you and your computer works to solve those problems. They're very difficult problems. It will take your computer a long time. They're huge problems. It takes a lot of processing power over a great period of time. The idea is that you know, you'll let your computer idle uh, at some point and you just put that in the background and it's running those calculations with the free processing power it has. Once it solves it, you are awarded by the the ledger, whoever um, whoever you know puts by out the, the coins. In the case of Bitcoin, it is Satoshi Nakamoto. Mister <laughs> Nakamoto sends you a Bitcoin afterwards. Say good job, you solved the puzzle. Um, and that is how it's made. <laughs> That's the end of it. The, so the idea behind it, I guess, is that you know since it's a, a digital object, you want it to be something unique. You have to put value into it. And one of the ways we can think of doing that is basically, I'm going to put value into it by putting this kind of labor into it of solving these very difficult math equations that really you're not going to solve. Your computer is going to solve them because they're very complicated even for the computer to solve. So that labor that's being done is generating value. The coin is proof of the labor. It is proof yeah. of work. That, that's where that term comes from. Right. Now, there is an alternative called the proof of stake model, which... This is gaining popularity. Like Ethereum is, has been moving away from proof of work to proof of stake. Proof of stake is basically the idea that these coins are going to have value because we're going to imbue them with actual money, basically. It is, it is a currency backed by an actual currency, essentially. Right. So in this way, a lot of people can come together and you're all going to make an investment upfront. I'm going to give you 10 bucks or whatever. Everybody puts in 10 bucks and there's a lottery system. And if you put money in, you may be chosen to make the crypto coin, the next crypto coin. Now I could put in 50 bucks. And now at some point, the lottery will end up choosing me more often to make these coins. So I'm putting a lot of money in up front, but I'm going to be rewarded eventually with more of these coins that I can then enter into the market and they're gonna have value that way. And the community itself is all coming together to constantly watch and make sure that you are not fraudulently creating any of these crypto tokens, that everything is operating above, above board. If anybody fails to do their job and the accountability you know, doesn't work, then you get a penalty and they lose out financially. You're staking a lot of money upfront. So this is proof of stake model. And you might be asking, well, why is the proof of stake model becoming so popular? And in part, it's because of the potential damages of the proof of work model. If you've heard about Bitcoin and crypto and whatever, you've probably heard a lot about the environmental impact of them. Uh-oh. To do these calculations takes an immense amount of processing power. And people don't want to sit around for months at a time to wait for this calculation to be completed. So crypto miners, people who, uh, that's the term for people who build a rig and have their computers sit there and do these calculations. These miners have slowly been increasing the amount of processing power available to themselves so that way they can access these coins more quickly. 
at this point, each calculation, each math problem that is completed to get one Bitcoin results in 319 kilograms of carbon emission. That sounds vaguely like it might be a big number. Let me contextualize that slightly. Uh, this is about the same amount of carbon emission that you might create if you watched five and a half years straight of Netflix or of YouTube videos. Or it might be uh, the amount of carbon emission that your car would produce uh, on average over 11 years for one Bitcoin. So the fact that there are thousands of thousands of these Bitcoins being mined constantly, this produces quite a bit of carbon emission for uh, the planet. And it is actually having real sort of impacts on the carbon footprint of a lot of countries. A lot of miners will like go to places like the Arctic because doing all this processing uh, with all these graphics cards that they use for the, to increase their uh, processing power produces a lot of heat. So just as like a heat sink as a way to vent these very hot pieces of hardware, uh, they'll go to like Iceland or Russia or like Norway to do this stuff. But those are also places where there's a lot of renewable energy available to them, right? Geothermal, these kinds of things. But the problem is, is that really only about 39% of all of these calculations are done utilizing renewable energy. The rest of that is coal. It is natural gas. It is uh, nuclear in some places. So that's a huge issue, right? Especially when you consider that, you know, in a country like China, crypto miners, where there's a very large amount of cryptocurrency uh, mining going on in China at the moment, it produces about the same amount as a small country's carbon emissions. So like the Czech Republic or like Qatar, you know, this is a huge industry and it is producing a large amount of uh, carbon emission. It's important also to clarify that when we talk about people idling their computers all day to do this, this is not like a dude with his laptop sitting at no. home or something. We are talking about warehouses, warehouses filled just to bursting with servers that do nothing but run 24 seven in order to calculate these equations or whatever. There's a popular uh, sort of metaphor people talk about online, which yeah. is imagine if you just left your car idling all day, every day, and at the end of the day, it solves an extremely super expert level Sudoku. And then you get to go around with your super expert level Sudoku and you can tell people like, hey, I've got my super expert level Sudoku. Do you have a super expert level Sudoku? And they're like, no, I don't. They're like, I bet you'd pay me a lot of money for this, wouldn't you? And they're like, yeah, these are very rare. I pay you exactly, what's the market price of a Bitcoin? $32,000 for that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, and that is, if not one of probably the major issue with the proof of work at the moment that a lot of people are bringing attention to. The other is a little bit more niche, but it is a major sort of strain on actual economies that are not connected to crypto, which is that it has a real hardware strain on sort of world markets. You know, the other day I was looking around at computer uh, hardware and you could see that the price of GPUs, right, video cards, things to run like graphics on, had like quadrupled in the past eight months. You've got graphics cards that, you know, are maybe... Uh, most recent or like one generation old that are the price of buying an entire computer on its own, maybe in a previous market. Well, and that's if you can even find one, right? There'll, these miners will go to you know, Best Buy, Newegg, any of these websites and just buy up the stock immediately just to fuel this machine to solve Sudokus. And, you know, and, and there's a certain amount of frustration among, you know, hobbyists and things like that, like computer hobbyists who 
the their ability to buy the latest you know hardware now is impeded by the fact that there's such a huge demand for this hardware to sit in a warehouse somewhere the pollution machines that's the, the pollution the, machines the that get you sudokus <laughs> yep they're just machines that basically they just they just use up energy doing absolutely nothing and they end up producing these uh digital coins and this is why it's really important to discuss exactly what the what exactly the method of creating these crypto coins is because the thing that is maddening about all of this is that this kind of emission this sort of senseless waste about all of it is absolutely arbitrary right the, the, it is just a, a result of the fact that we're saying proof of work is how we're going to do it so get your computer get your warehouses of computers and graphics cards ready because you're going to have to solve these problems all day yeah and the proof of stake model which is you know, better uh, in terms of the uh, environmental output also has its problems. So let's let's talk about it. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to talk about that because one of the ideals of cryptocurrency up front was that yeah it, you had this unregulated thing. This was a currency of the people. People could use it. And to be fair, in a lot of countries like in in Sudan, in Nigeria, Ethiopia, things like Bitcoin, they are more stable than their the currencies of their own nations. You know, they can help overcome things like wealth inequality by opening up markets. It's very easy to make transactions internationally, and it allows for, you know, uh, various activist groups to help one another with when they're wrongfully imprisoned or if they're any medical expenses paid or anything like that. Like cryptocurrency can be used in very cool ways. The problems seem to arise, though, uh, when you talk about equality and liberation and things like this. When you really realize who's making the money off of these things and who is really controlling them. So let's talk about proof of stake for a moment. The idea is like, yeah, you're, you're saving a lot of energy by basically just saying, we're going to put money in up front. The more money you put in, the more of the cryptocurrency you're able to generate, which then you can sell and you're entering it into the marketplace. If you realize the equation there is basically, if you have a lot of money up front, yeah. you can buy a lot of money. That to me is not a liberating system you have there where the people who have the money make the money. If you can buy $500,000 GPUs, yeah, you can get a whole Bitcoin. You can, you can be set free from the constraints of regulated markets. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's the other thing is that for the proof of work system that Evan was talking about, that's not much better either because the only yeah. people who are building warehouses full of servers that are running all day making these calculations are people who have the money to buy the land, the facilities, the computer parts to the, the energy to run them. Yeah. Like, yes, people are able to use this technology in ways that I think are very cool, but also it's basically just recreating if you have the money, you make the money, which is not very liberating to me. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it is the same sort of systems of power, just you've kind of given it a new coat of paint. So, and a lot of people are getting in on this, kind of the, the, the big voices in like, like cool young investment in business and stuff like that. People like Mark Cuban, guys like Gary Vaynerchuk, but it also is going on to lots of industries are really trying to get into this. You've got, uh, within the music industry, you've got Grimes, who is Elon Musk's uh, they're not married, are they? I think I think she they have a, they have no, a child. No, but together. they have a beautiful child named X twenty three or something like that. Yeah, it's like their kid's name is like Aeon Flux twelve or something. Yeah. 
Um, so Grimes, the musician, uh, Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park, Rob Gronkowski from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Rob Gronkowski is getting in on NFT sports cards. Lindsay Lohan has created an NFT album. Logan Paul, the YouTuber. All these various like big names are getting in on either cryptocurrency or NFTs. It's just like there's this huge bubble forming right now where everybody wants to get in on this space because there's a lot of money to be made here. And, you know, for a lot of these people, they don't know. Lindsay Lohan, like no offense to Lindsay Lohan, but like- You watch it, buddy. I tell you, she is not- don't say anything bad about Lindsay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, Lindsay. I, no, really nothing against Lindsay Lohan. It's just a yeah. very complicated topic. And I am going to say 99% sure Lindsay Lohan herself is not the one who's behind developing the NFTs for mm. her music albums or whatever. This is the record labels themselves are trying to get in on this space, which is what always happens. Like as, as a new marketplace developed, whether it's like the grunge scene or punk or rap or hip hop, yeah. whatever, now it's with NFTs. The people who have the money to become, you know, sort of early adopters, they're going to come in and they're going to try to dominate that space. I mean, this is how anything that is subversive or has alterity to it is going to be treated, right? Is it will be sort of brought into mainstream and turned into something very sort of non-offensive, very much part of how just things normally are. Yeah. And I mean, there have been a lot of the people behind a lot of the technology and there's a lot of artists in the space of like, again, yeah. going back to like NFTs, for example, people who are just like really trying to experiment with this stuff. And, and they're more interested in the artistic side of like, what does it mean that I've created a quote, non-fungible, unique piece of digital art? What does that say about objects and about value and about digital worlds and yada, yada? And like, oh yeah, like like there's a lot of cool stuff happening there. I know Evan's giving me a face of like, whatever, who cares? I'm like, I've talked to some of these people. Not none of them are thinking philosophically about. I mean, no, that I'm not. No, I'm no, not saying are. that you're wrong. Some are, but yeah. a lot are making grody dolphin uh, memes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but there's also a very a very crass business side to it. Yeah. And, but there are artists within this space who are like, I got into the NFT game because I thought it would be. You know, it's nice to be able to say, hey, I make digital art. This is unique. Somebody pay me for it. And to actually make money back off of that, like to be able to, you know, fund their careers this way. Yeah. I get that. Or if they're just interested because they just think it's an interesting thing or they're excited about the technology because it just is different and new. And within that space, there is a lot of debate about like kind of the selling out aspect of it. Now you have guys like the artist Beeple who was creating, he created a new digital art piece every single day for 10 years, I believe. His piece was called The First 5,000 Days. That sold for 70 million just a few months ago. Ooh. This is something, if you have an Instagram I you know, and follow any artist on Instagram, I guarantee that in the last 10 years, you've seen his stuff floating around Instagram or social media somewhere. He does the weird digital art of like baby Trump and like baby Hillary. Oh. Like, you, you, you know his stuff, right? You yeah, 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 no, yeah. sorry. The second you, you said uh, weird digital baby Trump, I said, yeah, okay, this is, I'm getting an image in my head. Yeah, yeah, he, he just makes really bizarre out there stuff. Some of it's really cool. Some of it, I feel like it's like, yeah, you did this in a day. <laughs> but the point is even this guy, I mean, like he was really cool. And a lot of people are turning against him because all of a sudden, I mean, he's simultaneously giving NFT art a lot of credibility, which is yeah. exciting for a lot of these artists, but also he's totally like a sellout because he is now, you know, kind of like, oh, watch out for NFT stuff. Like it's, it's a bubble and yada, yada, all these things are like, Hey man, at the extent of the critique, <laughs> Hey, 
That's cool, dude. <laughs> but there has been a bubble. And and with a lot of this stuff, like I mean, like we said at the top of the episode, lots of these things are losing value basically because people are trying to jump in on it because it's hot and they don't know what they're doing. This applies like all across the board. Like we mentioned Dogecoin, the meme coin with the little dog face on it. Dogecoin took off because Elon Musk, Elon Musk is so, he's such a crazy person. He has the power with a single tweet to build up and destroy market value. You know what I mean? Like with but a word, he can create and destroy entire universes of money. Oh, literally. I mean, he, he's done it. He's done it for his own, for Tesla and stuff like yeah, that. That's true. Uh, um, but, you know, Elon Musk loves being like, I'm the cool kid billionaire. I'm down with the memes and all the jokes and whatever. So he started backing Dogecoin because... He thought he wanted to be cool. He thought it'd be funny, whatever. What else are you gonna do with your exorbitant wealth? But like, just have fun with it. Yeah, there's not, there's, there's no use to having that much money, but to blow it on stupid like dog-faced money. So he started uh, endorsing Dogecoin and saying that it was gonna be accepted by like Tesla and whatever, all this stuff. I have no idea whether any of that is actually gonna turn out to be true or not, but like immediately Dogecoin started like skyrocketing and all these people started getting in on it. Cause they're like- It rocketed to a whole 66 cents. <laughs> We're going to the moon guys. This like all these memes started popping out, you know, they've always been about the memes. Yeah. About like, yeah, hold until we get to a dollar. Like daddy Elon is going to take us to the moon and yada, yada, all this kind of stuff. And then Elon Musk started talking about how like, oh, the Dogecoin thing was totally a joke and it like tanked. And then he kind of like walked that back and whatever. And then Elon Musk was like, oh yeah, Bitcoin. I'm like done with Bitcoin. Like he started like implying that Tesla wasn't going to use Bitcoin anymore. They weren't going to accept Bitcoin anymore, which like how big is the number of people who are buying Teslas with their Bitcoins? Yeah. Like- but even with this, it like instantly create a bear market where just like value in Bitcoin just evaporated over like a week. Yeah, matter of days, these Bitcoin dropped. And it's the thing is nobody really knows how to value any of this stuff. So you've got Elon Musk being like, I don't know if we're going to use Bitcoin anymore to buy our cars. And all of a sudden people are like, well, this indicates that Bitcoin itself isn't worthwhile. And not only does it indicate that, but it indicates crypto isn't worthwhile. You know, and then you've got people like JP Morgan saying like, everyone's going to be moving away from Bitcoin. They're going to be going back to gold and stuff like that. Where again, like, yeah, we, the idea behind cryptocurrencies and NFTs and things is that you are going to create a very stable currency that is going to liberate people, but it's still completely at the whim. I'd, I'd argue more so at the whim of these like extremely wealthy people who don't even really understand it. Yeah. Or, okay, so also this past week, this is absolutely insane to me. There's a guy named Justin Sun. He owns Tron, which is like a blockchain marketplace thing. It doesn't matter. The point is he's, he's very big in crypto. He has a lot of money in Ethereum. Ethereum is another blockchain. Just know it's Ether is one of these cryptocurrencies. He has a liquidity protocol for Ethereum for a billion dollars. If Ethereum ever drops below $2,000, doesn't matter how long, he will automatically sell off a billion dollars of his Ethereum. Well, a few days ago, it turns out that Ethereum dropped below $2,000 for like two minutes. And according to the liquidity protocol, he should have sold off a billion dollars of his Ethereum, which would have crashed the entire market for Ethereum. Ethereum is, I believe, the second biggest crypto market next to Bitcoin. Bitcoin, yeah. The only reason it didn't happen is because five minutes before it dropped, 
he went in and changed it. It's like, you know what? That's maybe not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I he, he saw that it was going down and yeah. recognized the ramifications of this thing. And now he's like, going, he's like posting online and stuff. He's like, like a bullet grazing your, your scalp. I saved cryptocurrency <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> Worship me. <laughs> a little messianic, you know? But also it's like, yeah, you saved it from yourself having like such a massive amount of shares in this marketplace that you could single-handedly crash it. No, it's like he's playing Russian roulette with himself and then was like, I didn't shoot myself. I saved me. I'm a hero. (laughs) And also I didn't shoot all of you. I think this is just an extreme version of like how actual stock markets work, which is that like at their height, if they become very powerful, that's why these, you know, uh, boom and bust cast cycles happen is because they are inherently these self-destructive things where it's like, cool, there's a lot of money in it now. I want to cash out. And then suddenly there's a huge dearth because it's like, well, there's a lot of this stuff, a glut of it on the market. The value is down. Yeah. And just again, emphasizes the fact that like, there's a handful of extremely rich people who are controlling these markets. Like you want stability from your cryptocurrencies. That's one of the points of it that like, it's not going to be influenced by these like powerful forces. It's like this one dude could have crashed the whole market. Yeah. And so many people would have lost so much money just by, if he had been five minutes later. It is obviously something bad with the crypto market because I think it's heightened there. But I think this indicates to us the volatility of markets in general. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting, like uh, sort of reflecting, like as you look at cryptocurrency stuff, you can start asking questions about like, well, what about regular money? And then, you know, And then you get into a lot of the people who are trying to invest in this stuff. Part of why I think, you know, we want to do an episode about this is I'm going to go back to Dogecoin because it's just a perfect example. I've been hanging out in the Dogecoin Reddit for weeks, just watching them as the the value of this thing has like bounced all over the place. And I've determined, this is my perception. David's expert opinion is 0% of the people who invest in Dogecoin have any idea what they're doing. (laughs) hot take there's a weird thing that's happened and i don't believe this is true of all cryptocurrency but dogecoin in particular but i but i think that there this is kind of representative is dogecoin has been a it's a it's a virtual currency for a virtual world and a virtual culture a lot of how information is spread is through memes so and not very great information it's just like things like you know hold or, you know, uh, buy the dip. Buy the dip is a really big one. Basically, all it means is... is it tobacco usage? No, buy, buy low. Just whenever the price goes down, buy it. Just pay the money for it. I understand, yes. So when things are looking bad, that's when they're the best. I mean, this is pretty basic, like, I mean, like stock market type stuff. Yeah. But there's no real, like, knowledge behind it. And a lot of people are starting to freak out because they're realizing that they're... They'll, literally, they'll say things like, I listen to the memes. Why am I losing money? And stuff like that. And they're starting, they're starting to like really panic. I mean, I think this says something profound about like how actual markets work, which is that it's such a sort of like closed club of like knowledge or access or a sense of like, this is complicated. Don't even think about it. Just like use some kind of service to invest with. And so the second anybody is like, no, I'm going to, uh, you know, strike out my own. How hard could it be? Yeah. And you end up getting uh, sort of bit by that because it is complicated. You know, and and that kind of way of thinking about markets is restricted to people. Yeah, you may also have noticed that even though we're talking we're talking about currencies, like Bitcoin is supposed to be a replacement for money. Dogecoin is supposed to be a replacement for money. We're talking about them like they're stocks. Right. 
And that leads to another big problem, which again, I'm gonna talk about Dogecoin just because I think they're such a crazy community. Yeah, so a big source of contention in the Dogecoin community is you have, you know, like I mentioned before, they're one of these memes is like, hold for a dollar, like wait until Dogecoin gets to a dollar. Implicitly, what's meant by that is when you reach a dollar, sell. And there's a big divide between the people who are looking at this as an investment to make money off of, and then they're going to sell it off and not use it anymore. And the people who are like, wait a minute, I thought we wanted the dog money to be our new currency. I thought, aren't we trying to build a new money? And that really emphasizes the big problem with cryptocurrency is that for most, I don't know if I'd say most people, but I, I, I'm going to say for most people, it's not actually a currency. It is an investment. Yeah. It's a, and that's why you can say there's like such a bubble around it is they're, they're, we're treating this like some hot new stock. It reminds, it's like the, the dot-com bubble in the 90s or something like that. It's because the way that a decentralized currency operates is on a different planet from how like state currencies, government-issued currencies work. Because the, way, the reason why anybody uses dollars is because you can pay the American government your taxes in dollars, and that gives its, it gives it its value. The United States, can, people can pay debts off using this currency and the United States government will say, we use the violence of the state to enforce its, <laughs> to enforce its value, you know? The Doge people aren't going to come to David's apartment and beat him up for talking bad about the value of the Dogecoin. Maybe they will, I don't know. And this is a great transition, Evan, because it turns out that people within the crypto sphere are recognizing this, particularly for NFTs, because something like an NFT, a digital piece of art, really has no value on its own. And even though we are loving all this idea of a completely unregulated world and unregulated markets and things, we all love it. We all think this is great. I mean, it sounds great. You know, it's a very utopian idea. Yeah. It turns out a lot of these regulations uh, are in place for reasons uh, and partially to, to create value. So when you have something like an NFT, this digital piece of art, I mean, what are you going to do? You can invest in it. If you're a collector who just thinks that this is like a historic thing or something like you can pay money for it that way. You can trade them, whatever. But what do you do with like a digital piece of art? That's a big problem. And now we're trying to create sort of digital worlds and systems around NFTs. I'm not going to say to give them value, but to create a context where they have more value. And part of this is also like NFT is trying to impart a material, like a materiality to digital stuff that it doesn't already have. So it just makes sense that the next step is increase the materiality of the digital world in general to give value to these things and replicate in like a, uh, a matrix kind of way of creating um, a material-like digital experience, like trying to make like a gallery, right? Like a digital gallery or something that you can go and see digital NFTs in, make a yeah. digital avatar that you can go to the digital galleries to see the NFTs in, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah, and there, so there's stuff like a unique board, which is basically a, a blank website. It's like a Tumblr, but you can post your NFTs that you own there. And, you know, I, I believe they'll actually vet it. So if you don't own the NFT, you can't post it there. Unlike Tumblr, you post whatever you want. Or there's, yeah, like Evan was saying, you have 3D virtual art galleries to display things like Terra Virtua is one example, where you can put on your VR goggles and walk around a virtual gallery looking at the virtual art. Some of it is a flat JPEG. Some of it is three-dimensional sculptures or videos or whatever. But there are so many more options for what you can do with this digital stuff. And I'm going to run through a few of those because when you talk about a digital world or a metaverse or a matrix, whatever you want to, 
your point of reference is a Digimon. Your yes, your digital Digimon digital world. <laughs> what are examples of those? The most common are yeah, something like social media, and the other is basically just video games. Mm. So you're gonna see those really pop up again and again in relation to NFTs. So for example, probably one of the earliest NFTs you had were CryptoPunks. These were super low red. They, they look like little 8-bit heads. There were a ton of them this guy made and started selling them. And the idea was in social media, in the digital landscape, your digital face is everything, your little avatar. So if you could pay for your own CryptoPunk, your own little digital face, you could put in all your social media stuff, whatever. You're basically choosing like, how do I want to relate to the digital world around me? How do I want those people to see me? Well, you can pay money to get one of these. And again, I can and have gone and just copy pasted my own CryptoPunk. I've never used it on social media because I don't care. But like, you can just download it if you want to. The point though, is that you are a person who finds value in this and in the future, social media sites will increasingly care about that stuff. Like, do you own the photo that you're posting? Just like Terra Virtua, the virtual art gallery, or Unique Board, the virtual, you know, the, the web page gallery. Just like these sites care if you actually own your NFT, social media is most likely going to start caring because then it's going to fund this whole NFT marketplace. And it is so interesting to look at. Evan and I were actually just looking at the, I, I don't know if you say the code or the legal behind an NFT because there's, it's like somebody wrote up like an intellectual property law, but it's written like a computer program. It's so interesting. Right. You also have examples of video games like Axie Infinity, which is basically, Evan was talking about Digimon. It's like a Digimon Pokemon game where you breed your own Little critters, each one of them is an NFT. You can collect them, train them, battle them. You can rent them out to other players if they want to use it. And you can like basically like make money off of them. You're creating like your own like agency of like little NFT Pokemon. Yeah. There is Zed Run. Zed Run is a video game where you own, you breed, you race, and you can sell your own virtual NFT horse. And some of the top horses in the Zed Run world can go for like six figures, like actual money. It is literally, it's just a, it's just a digital version of horse breeding and horse racing and all of this stuff. There's Avagachi, which is a little interactive Tamagotchi type thing where, you know, you can purchase wearables for them. Again, it's this idea of like customizing how you present yourself. You can buy special hats and clothes and whatever for your little Tamagotchi pet but that's not even the craziest part of all of this. The most fascinating thing about this is that what is being developed now are things like Somnium. Somnium is an entire virtual reality sandbox world where you can build your own art galleries, build buildings in general. Like yeah. you, you get virtual land to virtually develop. You can go around, you can put up your NFTs on walls, in, in galleries, in the world and things like that. You can create your own office space to have digital meetings if you want to. All these things that kind of give a value to the NFTs that they don't just have on their own. And now you start to get into really weird territory because if the future of NFTs and cryptocurrency and whatever is basically a really rudimentary version of the matrix, you start thinking like, well, what, what isn't an NFT? What could you not turn into an NFT? Sure. 
I mean, you know, the art on the wall, the virtual art on the virtual wall is an NFT. But like, what about the wall itself? Could the virtual wall be an NFT? Could the whole building Mm. be an NFT? Could the virtual land be an NFT? Could you, your virtual self, be an NFT? Or the clothes that you virtually wear? Could a font that you're looking at be an NFT? The music you're listening to, whatever. You can actually, there, there are currently... And I do not understand this one single bit, but (laughs) NFTs that are themselves bundles of other NFTs that you can purchase. And somehow the rights all work out in weird ways. There's a whole like royalty system and all these things I don't fully understand. It sounds, what you just said to me sounds like the big short, like when they're, they're pitching CDOs, super, super toxic CDOs. (laughs) Actually, that's so funny. You mentioned that because that is exactly what I thought also when I was first looking this up. So you're getting into really weird territory. And this is part of why I feel like the crypto NFT world, even though we're seeing like just all these things like totally bombing in value, I don't think they're going to go away. No. Because being able to create a virtual world where potentially everything can be a transaction, there's there's too much money to be made there. I don't think you're going to escape that unless you really want to unless you really try and i think there's a certain aspect of if you i mean like we're talking about sort of bubbles for bitcoin and things like that bitcoin has never reversed its long-term trend right so it's been around for uh, a decade plus it is worth more than it started right and it has a pretty steady increase in value even if this bubble bursts bad like really hard it will end up probably being still worth more than it was before the the bubble. Yeah. So yeah, I think that there's a there's a really important aspect of this, which is that is not to say that this technology has no place. It obviously does because it is very popular and it is meeting these kinds of needs for people. But I think there is a certain aspect of there's a huge amount of volatility with these kinds of trends, right? It, there are huge boom and bust cycles with. I guess these projects in creating a digital materiality, there's something about it with each of these in their interest that keeps growing over time that I don't think it's going away because the conditions no. arising that, that bring these things to come about haven't gone away. They're only increasing in scale. Yeah. And I am kind of torn when it comes to this stuff. Cause on the one hand, the idea of these digital spaces and like, you know, there's this sort of like liberating theory of like a digital world is very appealing to me. I believe we've been talking about this since the beginning of the podcast, the sort of origins of the internet being really rooted in this idea of liberating people. And my problem when it comes to things like NFTs and stuff is not with the ideas or the technology that's being developed. I think that stuff is really exciting and cool. My problem is more that I think it's the, it's the wrong solution to a real problem. Yeah. None of what I just described needs an NFT to exist. The only thing the NFT adds is the money aspect. You can still make all these things, all these virtual worlds and whatever, without the NFT. You, I mean, video games have existed forever. I mean, you go on World of Warcraft, yeah, you make your own character and whatever and virtual goal. Not anybody can just come make the character. There is a system in place in that virtual world that prevents that from happening. There's no real value added to say, well, now... Like now it's really, really unique because it's an NFT. I think a lot of the problems that like artists and people are talking about that NFTs are solving, like, oh, now we get to get paid for our work and like we can show it off to people. 
um, without worrying about, you know, losing out or not being able to meet our own needs and things. That is a societal problem. That is a government and policy problem. NFTs are not going to solve that. As far as we, we can tell, looking through crypto and NFT stuff, they're basically recreating a lot of the same power dynamics and monetary systems that they're claiming to be escaping from. This is something we've talked about in our episode about AI, is new technology does not actually free people. At best, what it does is it gives you an opportunity to do something differently. But if you are not extremely intentional with the development of it, you know, it's gonna take the path of least resistance and recreate what is familiar. And I think that that's what NFTs and cryptocurrencies are doing right now. And I think that's a shame because I think that they really the technology behind them is very cool. And I mean, one way or another, it's gonna be the future anyway. I have a feeling that NFTs and these little like microtransactions and whatever are gonna become very seamless parts of daily life in the 21st century. You're not even gonna really think about them. You're gonna be making little, little micro purchases all the time and whatever. That's what basically every industry has been moving towards is how can we make it as easy as possible for you to pay us money for little conveniences or whatever that just kind of work their way into your life. And, you know, they're small enough that you don't feel them. Uh, To just kind of go back to what you were saying about sort of, it is very much the wrong reaction to an actual problem. If we were to take what a computer does and turn it into meat space reality, um, you're essentially saying that my computer is a materializer and I can materialize whatever I want with this materializer. I have infinite sort of ability to create whatever I need, right? Because if we're talking about creating things digitally, your computer has everything it needs essentially to make a digital world to do all of this stuff in. The only difference is that it doesn't have the instructions. And that is essentially where we're getting into this ability to arbitrarily create property, right? This cult of needing to own and create um, ownership in a digital world is trying to replicate a actual real world problem in a digital space that's already doesn't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's no reason you need to make scarcity a thing. Scarcity right. is a <laughs> source of so many problems. And yeah. we had a we have a digital world without it. And all of a sudden we're saying, well, what if though? What if we added in this like completely unnecessary obstacle? Yeah, I, I think that's that's the main issue is that if anything, we should to kind of take us back to the very beginning, which is David Wong talking about Star Trek as a potential good version of materiality. What we should be doing is trying to turn the real world into a digital world in that sense, right? We should be trying to make the real world more like a world where you don't actually own any of the things, it is just the assemblage of materials. And now nobody has to worry about that kind of thing there is a potential there for liberation inherent in digital stuff that should be applying to the real world and not basically shackling a liberated digital reality with all of the problems of meat space, essentially. Yeah, and if you doubt that people are gonna care about any of this stuff in 10 years, like, oh, what, what's the value of a digital piece of art? What's the value of a digital clothing on my digital body? All that stuff. I will just point you to the very popular game Fortnite or literally any other video game that exists right now where people are paying real money to decorate their virtual bodies with virtual clothes that do absolutely nothing. All they are is a form of self-expression. You know, it's like a digital fashion, whatever. It's just a new space to execute the exact same cultural and social impulses that we have in the real world. There's no reason to believe that 
we're not going to be recreating those things over and over again online. Yeah. And that's something that NFTs and cryptocurrency and everything are gonna work their way into. I, I think it's inevitable, whether Bitcoin survives or not, or Ethereum or Dogecoin or whatever, that, that doesn't matter. The Pandora's box has been opened and I don't see how you can close that again. the best money we've ever had. There's a good chance that crypto is the future currency of Earth. I think blockchain's way bigger than people realize. Like people are like on a Bitcoin level, people are a little smarter on the Ethereum level. But when you understand what the blockchain is, it can literally overthrow America and China and Russia. It's that powerful. Welcome back to Fast Money. There is a building boom breaking out, but it's not happening in your backyard. It is happening in a fake world called the metaverse. So Virtual real estate is a way for those companies to buy the land, the pixels, the parcels inside those games can generate revenue. You can charge rent, you can sell space for advertising, you can build a museum and charge admission. There's really no end. Last week, Logan Paul made over $5,081,490 selling digital trading cards of himself known as NFTs. Yeah. We sort of value things. It's like if everybody wants it, well, then it has value. I mean, what makes a Louis Vuitton purse have value? It's so heady, man. I understand it theoretically. I haven't spent a lot of time in it. The future is here. To the moon. To the moon. As we've done research for this, of course, the internet constantly watches what I go on. So all of my research about Bitcoin and crypto has been making it into my MSN homepage. <laughs> well, but it's not even just that. This is, I mean, this is like front page news the past few weeks. Right. Here we go. Uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Pizza Day? Laszlo Hanyex spent $3.8 billion on pizzas in the summer of 2010 using the novel crypto. Okay, that's not news. <laughs> Tesla shorts are having a much, much better year than 2020. Tesla owned by Elon Musk. So people are like, we th we're betting on Tesla will fail. So there's a lot of bad blood with Elon Musk at the moment. It's incredible how much Elon Musk shoots himself in the foot. Yeah. Okay. Crypto looks, quote, bubbly. And physical gold is a better inflation hedge, argues research report. Is this a JP um, Morgan thing? Uh, I think so. Here we go. Is it? Yeah. Amid Bitcoin and Dogecoin chaos, college students and graduates insist they're going long on crypto. Mm, let's see how long that lasts. <laughs> and this is what I'm talking about. You get these like meme people who are like, I mean, kids and stuff who are like, well, or not even just kids, but people who just like aren't really... Yeah. as educated and this is very a very difficult topic to be educated about even like actual economists yeah. are not totally sure what to make of a lot of what's happening here bitcoin and ether stumble again following a wild week for global cryptocurrencies oh i forgot about dan Har uh, sorry one more thing last thing then we're let's done. go for it in addition to everything else dan Harmon, the creator of community and rick and morty is creating a new show called crapopolis which i'm sure is not is not an indication of quality dan Armand's already like listen it's gonna be bad I, I already know i'm calling it it will be the first ever according to fox the first ever animated series curated entirely on the blockchain it's going to kick off fox's new nft entertainment company called blockchain creative labs what is a show on the blockchain mean what is an nft series really mean 
everything that everything you're saying at me right now, David, everything you've just said to me is the cringiest thing I've heard all day. <laughs> the, like a, a show called Crapopolis developed on blockchain for an NFT thing is something that would come up on like a Rick and Morty episode. Like that's what they would watch <laughs> on the on their like intergalactic TV. Oh my God, Dan Harmon has just jumped the shark. He is his own episode uh, topic. <laughs> So what exactly does that even mean? Like in terms, like, like, what does it really mean for us that the show is curated on the blockchain? And, but is that just going to create a new limit of where you can watch it? Is that the only advantage to that? Is it just for hype? What it like, I, that's something that cannot be answered for me so far. I wonder if it's going to be sort of the, the artificial scarcity thing that like libraries have, because libraries like through Hathi Trust, which is a book digitizer it basically takes books and it turns it into digital files and you can access it from wherever as long as you have a you know library account um but the problem is is that they treat it like it's an actual book so only one person in the entire world can check out that digital copy at a time mm. there's so much wrong with that um but i wonder if it's going to be like that where it's like mm, somebody's watching this vhs this digital vhs of the episode and you gotta wait for them to finish it before you can watch it i'm so curious to see the various ways that all these corporations are going to try to jump in on this and just just kind of screw with it, you know? Yeah. And like I said, a, a lot of cool things are being done with this technology. I mean, this is this is an important point. Even for all of like bad social and environmental and economic like effects this sort of thing is having, is I think it's like legitimately cool. These like ideas are just themselves very interesting. Yeah. To a certain extent, though, it is the ramifications of it that are. Um, upsetting and uh, concerning. Yeah, and a lot of people are getting hurt in the process of it. A lot of people are doing yeah. very well. They're benefiting from it, but a lot of people are also getting really damaged by it because they're, I mean, this is a very complicated technology. I can't tell you, I thought I knew a lot about this stuff to begin with, but I've learned yeah. so much researching this episode and trying to figure out with Evan how to even communicate all these things in a way that did not feel like a bunch of jargon. I'm so sick of hearing about all the jargon. Yeah, the jargon I hear. I'm sick of the jargon. Just tell me in plain English. There's no reason you can't explain these things in plain English. David's description of an NFT as stapling a token to a JPEG is probably the most concise and accessible <laughs> definition of an NFT I've ever encountered. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to be back in the saddle with you, Evan. <laughs> There's a couple of internet cowboys over here roaming the roaming the the frontier. And I'll tell of you what the internet. It's hard being an internet cowboy these days because the wild west just keeps on shrinking. They just keep paving it over and turning it into Starbucks, into parking lots. All right, we're back on schedule, baby. Woo! Thanks for joining us. And talking. It's about the summer of Anderson Brothers and Explorers, baby. <laughs> I'm Evan Anderson. And I'm David Ryan Anderson. You have to say you're Evan Axel. I need my middle name. Sorry, yeah. Well, I have been your host, Evan Axel Anderson. And I am and will ever be David Ryan Anderson. Eternally host, David. <laughs> uh, thanks thanks and, for being a brother today. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being our brother today. Take care, brothers. <laughs>
All right, the episode is over, but as always, it's time for credits. This episode, we're listening to Kingdom Come by Thieves. And I'd also like to say thanks to Something Unreal for his Windows XP remix that we hear at the top of every episode. I'm really glad that we got to talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies finally. You know, it's really made me think a lot about, you know, regular currencies in our you know, regular economy. Uh, but we're really glad that we got to hang out with you guys. I can't wait to see you next time. Bye. Yeah.